What a joy to be with you this morning. I truly am sorry that I missed this past Wednesday night when we had the Thanksgiving Eve service. That is genuinely my favorite service almost every year. I'm curious, if you were here, could you just raise your hand? Wow, praise God. I'm so grateful that you are here, and I'm especially thankful to those eight people who shared their testimony of God's saving grace in their life. What a good way to celebrate and give thanks to the Lord for all that he has done. Uh, I also thank you for your prayers. We have been a little sick at the Bunch House over the last week. So last Sunday, if you noticed, um, I kind of snuck in a little late and then left immediately after preaching. I normally don't do that. Uh, I'm not going to hang around and shake hands today either, just in case. But uh, we have had a little bit of sickness at the Bunch Home. And just to give a hint, last Sunday I was... uh, (laughs) I had a trash can standing next to me, just in case. Uh, Thankfully, this week, I am feeling so much better, but my voice is still a little bit rough. So if you could just pray for me as I'm preaching that the Lord would sustain me today as we go. Let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Oh, I'm so sorry. Kiddos, you are dismissed to class. I'm sorry. I'm getting that look from parents. Like, yes. (laughs) Normally, my hint is I see my own children there. (laughs) I get to look for my wife. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Uh, Today, we are going to begin at verse 36. Last week, we learned about the First Jerusalem Council and uh, the apostles who affirmed that the gospel is for all people, not just the Jews. And the Gentiles are not required to follow all the customs of the Jews, nor are they required to follow the Old Covenant law in order to come into Christianity. In other words, you do not have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Paul and Barnabas returned to their sending church in Antioch after that council, and they continued there teaching and preaching until the time came for them to return to the mission field. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And at this point, everything is going well. Uh, There are a few famous breakups in history. This may be one of the most significant. Please follow along in your copy of Scripture, Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word. Father, today as we come to the scripture, uh, we come to a passage like this one that appears like perhaps it is nothing more than a transitional note in a historical record, but Lord, I thank you that every word you give us is of great value. It is profitable for teaching and correction, and I pray that today that we would profit from your word. I ask that you would work through the preaching of your word and through the hearing of your word so that we might be transformed by your word. We ask, Lord, that even as we look at this disagreement between two faithful men of God, that we would learn how to be faithful men and women of God ourselves, that we would learn how and when we are to draw a line in the sand. And Lord, I pray that you would give us great wisdom when there is disagreement within the body. 
We pray that in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> there has been a significant amount of conflict in the book of Acts so far. Paul himself has been at the center of a great deal of this conflict. However, this is a very different event than being attacked by unsaved pagans or being accused by Jewish zealots. This argument occurs between friends. This argument occurs between people who are partners in ministry. And there is very little detail given to us regarding the conversations that were held between Paul and Barnabas. But what we are told is that the disagreement that they had was sharp. Now, this word is really interesting because the word that is used here for sharp is the kind of word that is used about a sickle that is used to cut down wheat. You know, that big hook, that scythe that they would use to chop down wheat? It is something that is intentionally designed to be cutting, to be severe. The word used here is speaking of something that does result in division. However, I want to be cautious not to imply anything that isn't in the Scriptures. Some people have argued that this statement about being a sharp disagreement must mean that the conversation that they had devolved into some kind of an emotional, emotional shouting match or some kind of an angry debate. However, there is nothing here in the Word of God that indicates that these men ever sinned in their conduct. I think that's very important to know and to remember as we consider what's going on here. It is very possible, and in my view actually probable, that neither of these two men did anything wrong in their dialogue with one another. In fact, I believe that even though they were completely dug into their position, resulting in a split up of their team, I do not think that they were acting childishly or abusively. So as we walk through this, that is how I will be presenting it. In order to best understand the conflict and glean wisdom from it, we're going to take this following approach. We're going to look at four things. First, the characters. Secondly, the conflict. Third, the conclusion. And lastly, applications. Let's begin by getting to know our characters a little bit better. Now, you are very familiar with Paul. We know him pretty well. But let's spend a little bit of time remembering who Barnabas and Mark are in order to understand the historical context that they fit into here in the early church. <clears throat> let's begin by learning about Barnabas. We first met Barnabas a long time ago, back in the book of Acts chapter 4. At that point, he was still going by his birth name, Joseph. And here's how he is introduced. The word says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now Joseph from Cyprus sold much of his property, and he gave the money to a church that everyone literally thought so highly of him that they gave him a new name. They called him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Why was this such a big deal? Why was this so significant for the early church? Well, remember that at this point, the church is in its infantile stage, and many of the Christians, including Barnabas, were not actually living in Jerusalem at this time. They had come there from all over the Roman Empire for Pentecost, and then in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, they heard the gospel, they were saved, and they decided, we want to stay here and not return home. It seems that 
most of those who were converted remained in Jerusalem rather than going back to their homelands. Naturally, this would put a major strain on them financially. In those days, you couldn't just go over to the ATM and pull out a couple hundred bucks to get by. If they had any wealth, it was back in their hometown, and they had no access to it. You're going to remember uh, that this problem got so bad that the early church literally had to establish those first proto-deacons in order to take care of the starving widows. Barnabas saw this need, and he sold a field to support those who were struggling financially. But consider the fact that selling a field was no small issue in these days. This was a foreshadowing of the fact that Barnabas was going to go out as a missionary. How so, you may ask? Well, consider that property rights in Israel are very different in these days than we understand property rights here in the United States. Uh, you know the fact that here on Long Island, property is valuable. It is expensive. But it rarely gets passed down from family member to family member for more than three generations. I highly doubt that you are living in your grandparents' home. It's important to understand that in these days, property was almost never sold because there was a massive implication for the descendants of the person selling that property. In the Old Testament, God had put in place protections against abuse of the poor by ensuring that every 50 years, the property would revert back to the owners. However, as far as we can tell, in, at this point in history, there is no indication that the people of Israel were following those rules of Jubilee. And this field that Barnabas had was his link to his offspring. It was the link they would have to their national heritage. He was already living in Cyprus, but he had kept this family farm near Jerusalem for posterity's sake. So selling was a big deal that would have been shocking to everyone involved. But even more, it was shocking when Barnabas then took all of the proceeds and he laid them at the feet of the apostles and said, Whatever you guys decide, I'm good with. You give it however you see fit. Whoever has a need, you spend it where you think it needs to go. The entire church would have been rejoicing over the love that was displayed by the faith of this man. Thus they called him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. His encouragement was not in word only. His encouragement was in action. And he was so esteemed that there was actually a couple, you'll remember them, Ananias and Sapphira, who who determined to sell their own property and then keep back some of the money and lie about it so that they too might gain that kind of name, so that they too might have that kind of credibility in the community. And of course, you remember what happened to them. The Lord struck them dead. But let's look back at Barnabas. He doesn't show up in the text for a while, but he pops back into the pages of Acts at an incredibly important point in history. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus was confronted by Jesus as he was traveling to Damascus. You remember how Saul was living at this time. His mission was to arrest, imprison, and even execute Christians. Jesus had other plans. Saul, or as we often refer to him, Paul the Apostle, was radically transformed when he encountered Jesus that day. However, when he returned to Jerusalem as a new Christian, he did not receive a warm welcome. We, feel, we find this in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Paul was the original persecutor of the church. He was the most notorious and dangerous man in the early church. 
Now, I understand why the church was skeptical. They were likely fearful that what Paul was going to do was to come in, smile a lot, sing with them, listen carefully, and while he is listening to the preaching, he is taking down every name and address that he can so that that night, KGB style, every one of those people would be arrested. They did not trust him at all. But in the very next verse we read, Acts chapter 9, 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas was such an encourager that he stood up for Paul when nobody would. He saw that nobody else, what nobody else could, evidence of a transformed life. And after this, we don't hear anything about either Paul or Barnabas for several years. And eventually, there's this pivotal moment that occurs in the life of the church. You will remember, it is one of the most significant moments in all of church history. Stephen dies at the hand of the Jewish leaders and becomes the first martyr of the church. He was stoned, and at that point, there was great fear that arose in the church, resulting in a diaspora, people leaving the city of Jerusalem and leaving for other parts of the empire. That is the context when we come into contact with Barnabas again. We find this in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas was clearly one of the most revered and capable men in the church at Jerusalem. So much so that when this church popped up that started to have these Hellenists included, the apostles found it necessary to send somebody to go and inspect. Who can go for us? Barnabas, will you go? He was also humble enough to know that he needed help. So he searched out that brilliant former Pharisee who he knew understood the gospel so well. He had heard Paul preach before. In other words, it was Barnabas who brought Paul into ministry and who brought him to the church at Antioch. And after several years, the church in Antioch commissioned both Paul and Barnabas for full-time missionary service and sent them out. We read about that in the first few verses of Acts chapter 13. And just as a side note, we really don't know what anybody in the New Testament looked like for sure. There's no sketches, there's, there's no imprints of their face anywhere. We, we have no clear indication or even representation in the text of descriptions of what these people looked like, except we have one relatively interesting example when we hear about Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13. When they were in one particular city, the residents believed that Paul must have been Hermes and that Barnabas 
must have been Zeus. Now, if you have ever seen any kind of depiction of Zeus, the pagan king of the gods, you'll know that he is always this chiseled, brilliantly good-looking man who has a great deal of muscle. That's probably what Barnabas looked like. He was a man who looked like Zeus to them. Barnabas was in every way a strong leader, a godly man, a wise man, and as it says, a good man full of the Spirit. And he probably also had included with that some very good looks. Now we have some good background information on Barnabas, but what about Mark? Mark has two names, uh, which can make it a little bit tricky to track him through the Bible if you aren't watching carefully. His Hebrew name was John, and his Greek name was Mark. Sometimes you'll see him referred to as John, also called Mark, or sometimes Mark, sometimes John, sometimes John Mark. You see this really clearly in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when it says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and praying. Now, it's important that they connect him with this particular house. Uh, this house is something that we can trace throughout the Scripture. It's a very important part of the early church's history. It's a large house with an upstairs gathering room that the church often used for ministry. Being that John Mark's father is never mentioned, it's likely that his dad had passed away by the time we encounter them in the book of Acts. Going backwards in time from this mention here in Acts chapter 12, you need to know that this is where Paul and Barnabas would stay when they were in Jerusalem. This was also where the disciples gathered after the crucifixion of Jesus and as they awaited for the Holy Spirit to arrive on the day of Pentecost, giving birth to the church. And going back even further, this is the same room where Jesus and his followers enjoyed the Last Supper together on the night that our Savior was betrayed. This means that it is possible that John Mark had met or even took part in serving food to Jesus during the disciples' last meal with him. It means that his mother was not only likely a disciple of Jesus, but a serious financial backer of the kingdom as well. Most common people in our day do not have homes that can have 120 people hanging out for 40 days upstairs. And maybe if you guys have one of those, let me know. We'll plan some church events there. Most of us can't do that. This woman's home was massive. And that was very uncommon, much more uncommon than it is now. It's very important also to know that some who uh, are scholars of the book of Mark believe that Mark was the mysterious man who followed Jesus and the disciples and then ran away during the betrayal of Judas and the subsequent arrest. If you remember the book of Mark, there's this mysterious encounter of a man who runs off in the middle of night, the night and all he's wearing is an outer garment. So when the Roman soldiers grab hold of it, he runs away into the darkness naked. You know, the only person who knows that story apparently is, is Mark, the author of the book of Mark. Many scholars believe he knows this story because he is that young man. This tells us that Mark is possibly somebody that could be viewed as the very first person to grow up in the church as a Christian. He was probably pampered. He was not hardened by common life. He was well-educated. He was seemingly committed to the faith. And so in Acts chapter 12, 25, we read, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. However, you need to know there's a really important detail that is not listed here that should not be overlooked. 
Colossians chapter 4 provides for us a very important tidbit of information that helps this situation make so much more sense in our text today. Colossians 4.10, Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. John Mark was familiar to Barnabas because they were blood relatives. He had an in with the leader of this mission trip. So when Paul and Barnabas set sail on their first trip, they took John Mark uh, with them. We read this in Acts chapter 13, verse 5. We, see that, or we just see that he is referred to as, quote, their helper. I love this. A.T. Robinson writes a really good way about helping us understand his role in this first mission trip. He says, in classic Greek, the word used to describe Mark here is the word for a common sailor, distinguished from another Greek word, which means a professional or skilled sailor. These were the men down in the ship's galley doing one thing, rowing with their eyes set on one man, the man standing at the front of the hole shouting, row, row, row. This suggests an interesting picture of John Mark as the helper of Barnabas and Saul. He most likely functioned like our modern-day ministry interns. This guy was the lowest rung of the totem pole. He was the one making the campfire. He was probably the guy cooking the food. He's the one packing the bags. He's the one who does the menial work. He wasn't teaching. He's not preaching, but his services were certainly needed. However, after the first leg of their journey on the Isle of Cyprus, John, John Mark, abandoned them. Acts chapter 13, 13, now Paul and his companion set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, in our text today, when Paul references back to this moment, he employs a Greek word that does not come through with as much punch in English as it should. The word that he uses there for departed from us is the word he abandoned us, or the same word that is used as a deserter in the army. He deserted us. He left us high and dry. When we most needed him, he was nowhere to be found. So those are our characters. Now let's consider the conflict. And I want to do this by looking from both Barnabas's and Paul's perspectives. Please know that as soon as I finish this portion of the sermon, I am going to ask all of you to vote on which side of the argument you think is correct. I'm going to do my best to present with the facts that we have in front of us the way I think they would have probably argued for their positions, and I'm going to ask you to vote once and only once on who you think is correct. Everyone has to vote, but please know that I am going to present these arguments uh, in an order that has no bearing on my opinion. Sometimes you know which way, way the pastor thinks is correct by which one he says last. That's not what I'm going to do today necessarily, just so you know. Also be aware that I'm going to be making rational, logical statements about what I believe these arguments were like, but ultimately we don't have them written for us in Scripture, so this is me making somewhat of a uh, natural leap in what I believe to be true, but we're not confident that this is what they said. This is certainly not exactly what they said. However, I imagine the Barnabas argument was something like this. Uh, listen, Paul, listen. He's a good kid. I know, I know, I know but I've known him all his life. Look, I was around when he was born. He made a mistake. We all make mistakes, Paul. We need to give him a second chance. 
You have received a second chance. He needs to have a second chance. And the very fact that he wants to go with us again, doesn't that show that he's grown? Last time, he was so fearful, he left us, but now he's overcome that. And we know he's overcome it because he's so excited about going with us now. And how else is he supposed to advance if we don't let him try? Don't you remember when nobody believed in you, Paul? And I begged them to hear you out. I begged them to give you a chance, and they did. Consider how that worked in your life, Paul, how that prepared you for where you are now. And listen, it was reasonable for him to be afraid. He's just a kid, and look at yourself. You're still nursing your bruises that you got when you were stoned almost to death. They thought you were dead, and he knew that could happen, Paul. He wasn't wrong to think it was dangerous. It was dangerous, and now he's ready to face that with us. He knows that he might get killed, and he's still willing to go. And he's clearly skilled in all the ways that we need help. He was working just fine last time before he went home. And he can write really well. And you are always looking for somebody to write while you dictate. Do you know how much it would crush his spirit if we say no? Do you know how much it would destroy him if we never let him go with us again? He might never attempt anything for the Lord ever again in his life. Now, I imagine that's, that's Barnabas' argument, something like that. And I imagine Paul's response would be something like this. Look, Barnabas, I agree with you. I believe in second chances. God knows that I have received more grace than anybody I know. However, we can't risk taking him with us again just to have him bail on us again. Last time, we weren't that far from home. We were just in Paphos over in Cyprus. But if we get all the way to Russia or Kazakhstan where we want to go and then he wants to go home, are you going to be the one who's up with him in the night when he's crying and ready to go back to his mom? What are you going to do when he's too afraid to sleep? What if he leaves us high and dry when we're too far away to reach out for another assistant? We don't have enough funds to take two of these guys with us. We need to make this decision count. And look, I believe in second chances, but let him try something close to home. Let him do something here, nearby, so that if there is a challenge, he doesn't have to fail in such a big and notable way. And also, make sure that he's not a limiting factor on how far we can take the gospel. Now, I know he's your cousin, but you can't let that cloud your judgment here, Barnabas. He's obviously a liability to us. It's my goal to go as far as we possibly can, even beyond the Roman Empire, if the Lord allows. And I can't imagine that he is really going to be capable of holding up to the the difficulties in this stage of his life. So, yes, I believe that he's a good man. I believe everything that you've said about him. But no, he should not come with us. He is a liability. I imagine that's about how Paul presented his argument. Now, here's the question. Who was right? If you think that Barnabas was right to give him a second chance, please raise your hand. If you believe that Paul was right to say, no, he shouldn't join us, please raise your hand. That's about a 50-50 split. That's about as tight as you can get. You know what's interesting? Um, As I have read through this, that's about what the scholars have to say about it, too. They're about a 50-50 split. In fact, This has not only been a sharp divide between Paul and Barnabas, this has been a sharp divide between anyone who's studied this argument ever since. But here's my opinion. I think that maybe both of them were correct. And the result was that Paul selected Silas to spread the gospel in one direction, and the Lord sent Barnabas with Mark in another. It seems to me that both of these godly men had different visions for what they were supposed to be doing. They had different visions for how the gospel needed to go forward, and they had different visions because at this point in their lives, 
even though they probably wouldn't have worded this way, God had given them different missions. He intentionally, by his providence, determined that he would send one missionary couple of men to go to the island of Cyprus and preach the gospel there, and the others were going to spread the word all throughout the rest of Asia Minor, and even, as we're going to see next week, going for the first time, taking the gospel into Europe. This is a big deal. But is anybody wrong? Well, clearly, they disagree, and it's possible that one of them were, but at this point, I do believe that both of them were standing strong in their convictions as for what is right. Interestingly, there is no textual evidence that either of these men are to be commended or that either of them are to be admonished. All Luke does, which is unusual for him, is just give the facts. He sets no indication for how we should believe about them. However, this does provide us with a number of helpful application points, 13 of them to be precise, that will help us to grow as believers. First, application number one, you need to believe the gospel. Listen, if you are not saved, if you are not a Christian, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, but you need to know that everything else that I say from now on has no bearing for you. Uh, these things that I'm going to tell everyone to do are things that not only can you not do, but these are things that you cannot do to earn God's favor. The Bible teaches that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and every one of us is worthy of condemnation. The Bible also says that Jesus came to live a perfect life and to save sinners like you and me. And the good news is that even though you can't work your way to him, he came to earn salvation for you. So that if you will just believe in Jesus who died for sinners and place your faith in him, you will be saved. So if you are a non-believer, if you are not a Christian, this is the end of the sermon for you. I want you to take the rest of the time that I will be talking and ponder on the good news of the gospel that salvation is free and available for all who believe. For those of us who are saved, I want you to know that everything else that I say from this point on, every other application point that I will make is only applicable to us because we have been transformed by the gospel. And this is a further way for us to encounter, express, and grow in Christ because we have been transformed by the gospel. The gospel is what propels you in all of these other ways. Which brings us to application point number two. This is particularly for young adults and teenagers. I want to encourage you to go. I want to encourage you to go to the mission field. I want to encourage you to be a helper like John Mark was a helper. We have precedence in the scripture to say that young men, and although there are no young women in this situation, I believe that it can be beneficial, young women, to go and be a support to those who are commissioned for the work. Uh, I went to college. I went to the mission field. Both of those things I did as a young man before I was established in my life as an adult with responsibilities where I had to clock in and only had a little bit of time off in the year and before I had a wife and before I had children, I had a lot more freedom. During that stage of my life, by God's grace, was able to go to the mission field and help those who were doing the really hard work as missionaries. Just to come alongside of them and say, what do you need done? I'll do it. I had... I have to tell you, young adults, teenagers, parents who are training your teenagers, that prepared me for real life more than college ever did. And that prepared me for my Christian life far more than anything in the local church ever did. 
because I was learning how to express the gospel to people that I knew desperately needed it. And one thing that I have never lost by the grace of God is that now, when I am here in our own country, I realize that this is likewise a mission field. That's something I learned by looking around everyone at me and realizing these people are going to hell and they need Jesus. Young people, find ways to go, maybe spend a summer or a semester or a year serving alongside of missionaries, helping them. It is a great benefit to you in your life. Application number three. Maybe you are in the retirement stage of your life. Maybe it would be good for you to go and take some time to support a missionary abroad. I want to tell you about a man named Tom Little. Uh, he is with the Lord now. I met Tom in 2008, I'm sorry, in 2007 uh, in Italy. And when I had met him, he had recently come from California to Italy to serve al alongside some missionaries. He was a retired car salesman from nearby Hollywood. And he had made some money. He wasn't a wealthy man by any means. But he said, I wish I wouldn't have spent so much of my life ignoring the mission field. I wish I could have helped before now. But what I know is that now I do not have a job. I do not have these kinds of responsibilities. Now I can pour in. And so what did he do? Look, this man, I knew a lot of people who tried to learn Italian. This was the worst Italian speaker I have ever met in my life. He tried and could not pronounce a single word. Even if he knew the vocabulary, no one in their country would ever understand him because he couldn't learn the language. But you know what he could do? He could help with the finances of the church, of the church plant there. He could help with the offset ministries of the church plant there. He could help with the American students like myself who came and serve alongside the missionaries. He could organize. He could rent cars. He could buy plane tickets. He could do all sorts of things. If you are in that retirement stage of life, consider finding a way to partner with a missionary and supporting them for a short time in your life. The fourth thing, uh, I want to speak to those who are currently committed to a job and family. That's the majority of people here. You're like, look, I definitely am not young enough that I can just jump on a plane and go somewhere else for a year. I have a mortgage and I have children. I can't necessarily make that happen. But I'm also nowhere near that stage where I'm retired and can just step away from those things either. Well, I want to encourage you, if there are opportunities through the church to take a mission trip somewhere, there is no scripture that says expressly that everyone should go on a short-term mission trip, but I do believe that it's of great value. Uh, I am already in the process of trying to prepare some things for 2024 to find ways for our church to be going other places. Um, I will say that COVID has made international travel far more complicated than it used to be, but I'm trying to find ways for us to go. And I encourage you, if you are a working person who has commitments in this life, say to yourself, I need to go, and I will commit to giving away one week of my vacation to taking the gospel to people who need it and to supporting missionaries somewhere else in the world. I encourage you to go. And application number five we are told to go into all the world and make disciples. That's the, the Great Commission. Will anyone from our congregation hear that call and go for the rest of their life to another tongue or tribe or nation? It would be such a great joy if somebody from our congregation would be raised up, trained and prepared, and ready and equipped to go serve the Lord on the foreign field. Application number six. You need to know that your lack of, of participation in ministry hurts 
ministry. Uh, there are so many people who will say things like, look, I, I really just don't have that much to offer. I don't have that much to give. So it's really not that big of a deal that I don't serve in my local church. Well, John Mark's job was pretty simple. He didn't have any complex preaching or teaching responsibilities. He was not the one probably making the schedule for where they're going to travel. He is not the one even buying the tickets. This guy's job was to just carry the luggage most of the time. Yet, when he departed them, it hurt enough that Paul and Barnabas split over whether or not he should go again. His role, his role that seemed so insignificant when it was missing radically impacted the rest of their journey. Now, in the church, you might not have a role that is flashy. You might not have a role that is public. You might not have a role that you think is that important, but you have skills that are beneficial and necessary to the church, and your lack of participation hurts the church. I encourage you, whatever gifts you have, utilize them for the kingdom of God here in our local body. Now, some people say, I don't have any gifting. Well, some days we have to clean the church. It doesn't take a lot of gifting to push a broom. Anybody can do that. And just start there. Start with the littlest things and build up, and the Lord will provide ways for you to serve. Your lack of participation hurts the ministry. Application seven, choose your battles wisely. The next several of our application points here are all going to relate to interpersonal conflict and this, I think, is a very significant one. You need to know that you are defined in large part by where you choose to put your foot down. Uh, this year, I've begun reading through presidential biographies again. I, I kind of lost track of where I was and like which presidents I had read and not read. And so I'm just starting over this year. And one of the things that's really interesting to me that I noticed as I was reading through some of the biographies this year is the fact that the main thing that seems to be the focal point of these books is where the presidents had conflict with other people. It's not the major legislation that they wrote. It's not the major bills that they passed. It's not even the wars that they fought in some cases. It's the conflict that they had with the people around them that is most notable and recorded in these biographies. Conflict is often the main thing people will remember about your life. And there will be places that you have to put your foot down, and there will be places that you have to divide with others. You need to make sure that when you do that, it is over things that matter, over things that are significant, over things that are actually of eternal weight. So please be careful not to divide unnecessarily. Which brings us to our eighth application. Don't be a divisive person. Divisive people are not just people who have a little character flaw here or there. The Bible warns us strongly against divisive people. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned, meaning that he is not a Christian, and you can tell that by his actions. <clears throat> Don't be a divisive person. Now, if you look around your life and you see that everywhere around you, it's like every relationship you have ever had seems to end in this sharp division, well, you might want to look in the mirror because you are probably the problem. Don't be a divisive person. Closely related, number nine, don't follow people who are divisive. Some people thrive on being divisive, and I would encourage you, don't bite the hook. People want to bring you into their conflict. 
don't bite the hook. YouTubers, discernment bloggers, they do their best to make a big deal about all of these controversies that are existing in the church today, and they want you to jump on board so that they will get more views and so that they can make you aware of the great trouble ahead of you. Don't bite the hook. Several years ago, I was surprised to see a headline on a video that showed up on my YouTube screen. <clears throat> it spoke of two well-known pastors, and it says, Pastor A says that Pastor B is unfit for ministry. And I was like, wow, like that's a, that's a major accusation of two people that I respect very highly. What's all this about? So I watched this video, and he had pulled out a small snippet of a sermon that one of these preachers, Preacher A, had said nearly 30 years earlier. And he took this small snippet, and he said, anyone whose life is like this, in, protect, in particular, he was saying, anyone whose adult children turn away from the faith and rebel and reject the gospel, anyone who does that, they are not fit for ministry if their children do this. And even though Pastor A no longer believes that, Pastor B has a son who is an adult, who has rejected the gospel, and who is an apostate, and who is not a professing believer anymore. Does Pastor A ever say of Pastor B, you are unfit of ministry? No. In fact, the two of them preach conferences together all the time. It's not a conflict, but this person was so divisive, he thought it necessary to make clear, Pastor A says Pastor B is unfit for ministry. Some people are intentionally divisive. And I encourage you in this day and age when that is so common and so prevalent, don't bite the hook. They want to draw you in. Don't be part of that drama. Uh, number 10, don't dramatize the church when various religious leaders do disagree with one another publicly. Instead, pray for them. We live in a very strange era when you can hear the preaching of almost any pastor in our country. That's unusual in church history. And you can begin to follow people who you otherwise will never meet or never hear. And that has produced, unfortunately, a kind of celebrity pastor in our culture. And whenever there is some kind of a division, like a Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas separation, it seems like the whole church now across the entire world has to choose sides. I encourage you, don't dramatize the church. Pray for peace and pray for unity. Number 11, be ready to get in the game. When I was in high school, believe it or not, I know that doesn't appear so, but I actually used to be athletic, and I used to be a basketball player. Uh, different people who play, as you know, have different positions. Some people will be a point guard. In high school where I played, you had the high post or low post or the wing position. Uh, my position was the bench warmer. Uh, my, my primary job was to make sure the seats were comfortable and ready so when the starters had got enough of a lead, they could come in and sit down and, and, and be comfortable. That was my job for the most part. But if we had a lead of over 30 points, or if we were at a point in the game where one of our, our starters had gotten injured and my number got called, I was ready. And I was going to get in that game and I was going to play. To the best of my ability, play my heart out. Well, many of you will look at this text here that we have before us, and, and you'll recognize that there is a character we haven't mentioned yet. His name is Silas. Silas was ready. 
Silas was not expected to go on this trip. Nobody thought he was going to go with them. Yet, he was prepared. He knew that if his number got called, he should be ready to go. I was really encouraged, even though I wasn't able to be here this past Wednesday, uh, that we had eight people who were willing to share their testimonies. Um, just several weeks ago, I was talking with Francesco and Jonathan in one of our staff meetings, and I can't remember which one of them, but one of them brought up, they said, hey, you know, we have the, uh, we have the testimony service coming up. Have you gotten the people to share their testimonies yet? And I don't know what it was. The holiday snuck up on me. I was like, oh my goodness, I haven't asked anybody. I can't believe it. I forgot. And so I asked eight people. Every one of those people, they weren't last minute, but they definitely did not have an extensive amount of time to prepare. Yet when their number was called, they said, I'm ready. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to preach the gospel by sharing what the Lord has done for me. And praise God they did. And if you were here, I know that you were encouraged because they were ready when their number was called. Well, listen, I want you to know that there's a lot of ways that your number can be called. On Sunday mornings, for example, you don't have to go to the far ends of the world to share the gospel with somebody who's unsaved. Almost every Sunday we have visitors in this church, and many of those people do not know Christ. There are many times when I have tapped somebody on the shoulder and I said, hey, can you just go talk to that person who's sitting by themselves over there? They're new to the church. Can you just go say hello? Uh, visitors, if you're here, I'm going to give you some inside baseball. I always do this with an ulterior motive. I am not just sending you there to talk about the weather. I'm not just sending you there to get to know somebody's name or where they, get, where they are employed. I am sending you there because I want you to speak to them about Christ and preach the gospel. Sometimes that's how your number will be called. Be ready so that when you are asked to serve, you are well prepared. Uh, uh, application number 12. Don't burn bridges between two brother, true brothers and sisters in Christ. There was a division that took place in our text today. Paul and Barnabas sharply disagreed about how to move forward in ministry. And for many people, that would have been the end of their earthly relationship. I want nothing to do with you, Paul. I want nothing to do with you, Barnabas. Barnabas could look at Paul and say, look, I did everything for you. I trained you. I brought you into the ministry. I'm the one that got you this job, Paul. And now you're going to turn around and split? Or Paul saying, look, Barnabas, we had all of this incredible ministry ahead of us, and you chose your, your cousin over this? That could have been a division that split them forever. But look back at Colossians 4, 10 through 11. We read this earlier. This was written much later, after many years of ministry. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. That is amazing. That's Paul's attitude. Verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision, meaning Jewish, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. That's all we hear about Barnabas for the rest of the New Testament. We don't know where he went. We don't know what he did. Other than going to Cyprus for a while, we have no clue what the Lord did through his ministry. What we do know is that at some point, he was a comfort to Paul. They were not burning this bridge between them. Their relationship was not over. If for some reason you have to disagree over ministry or over something else, try to retain a relationship that is good for the kingdom of God. Last application. Application number 13. 
Don't give up when you fail. John Mark Blewett. This guy, he chickened out. We don't know exactly why he left. It doesn't actually tell us. Most scholars believe that he ran away because he was fearful. He had just seen Simon the sorcerer and the blinding of this man. There's a lot of supernatural things. And Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go on a boat, which Jewish people tended in those days to be quite fearful of, and then he was going to take a boat into Pamphylia, which at the time was one of the most dangerous roads to travel on in the world. It was a trade road where people constantly got robbed. And Timothy's like, I'm out. Or I'm sorry, John Mark says, I'm out. I'm going back. And so some people referred to him as a mama's boy. He was going back home to the big house where they had lots of money and things were comfortable and easy. He ran away. He blew it. But he was shown grace from the Lord, and he grew to be a very important figure in the kingdom. In the very last chapter that Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says this. He said, Luke alone is with me. He could have asked for anybody. He could have asked for anybody in the church. Hey, go get anybody. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. This guy went from being useless to Paul, where he wouldn't even dare take him with him, to saying, this man is useful to me in ministry. He didn't minister alongside Paul very much from what we know of history. Most of his ministry was with another apostle. When he failed and when he was not permitted to go with Paul, instead he goes with Barnabas, and he does ministry. But then when he comes back, he serves alongside somebody else, a very famous somebody else named Peter. In fact, he is the one who wrote down most of Peter's remembrances of Christ into what is possibly and very likely the first book of the New Testament and certainly the first of the four Gospels ever written. He writes the book of Mark. Now, maybe you've fallen short. There's good news for Christians who fail. There's good news for Christians who fall short. There's good news for people who make mistakes. Jesus is a loving Savior who is ready to help you bounce back. If you are afraid to evangelize or get involved in ministry because of past failures or rejection or hurt, talk to me. Let's see where we can bring you back into the fold. Let's see what we can do to ensure that you can, just like Mark, move forward with your walk in the, uh, with the Lord, growing daily in your love and service for Him. There's good news in the gospel for you, that God uses broken people. It's good for you to know that He can draw a beautiful picture with a broken pencil. He can do that with you. He did that with John Mark. He does that with all of us because all of us are fa failures at some point. I'm thankful that we see this example that Paul doesn't even give up on Mark. At the end, he says he is very useful and I want all of us to have that set of us in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that today as we have looked at this division between Paul and Barnabas, I ask, Lord, that you would help all of us to be people of unity, <clears throat> that we would not divide in any way unnecessarily, that you would help us to have wisdom about where to put our foot down and where to draw a line. I ask, Father, that you would help us to be people of peace who seek peace in our community. I also ask, Lord, that you would help us to have great wisdom uh, when we have failed, just like, just like Mark, that you would help us to be restored and that you would help us to find places to serve so that we might honor you in all that we do in all that we say. Lord, ultimately, all of this is for the precious name and sake of Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.